It was hard for me during cahoots. And it started before that, even. But during cahoots, it was just like, just, you know, everybody would, if everybody would show up, it was still not like everybody was there. And, and, and there was a whole feeling of pulling teeth. Everything was hard. The band had just come off of making their hardest album yet. With music from Big Pink and their self-titled being relatively easy in process and production, relative to other groups this makes sense. In most cases, bands build up their material over years and this is beneficial. And after a few albums, it all has to become relatively new material. Add in complexities of a new lifestyle with different pleasures and vices, it seems that making music becomes a lot harder for many, including the band. It was said that the band stopped making music for themselves and more for the recording company. Well, I think that might be a bit of a stretch. The approach definitely changed. Though Rick Danko later told the new star in 1993, I think we shipped a million copies of that second album and that changed a lot of people's lives, in particular the bands. After that, we only got together once a year for a couple months to record. It was like we were all too decadent to play. Honestly, looking back, the group had a crippling record contract like many that demanded 10 albums with addition of the expectation of a tour. The band was never really commercially inclined and they didn't want to do massive tours like say the Rolling Stones, nor did they care about album cycles or singles. That mentality worked against them in this system and coming off a stage fright with somewhat mixed reviews, the band was in an interesting spot. From stage fright, it became apparent that Richard no longer occupied the role as songwriter, along with Robbie. There are many speculations as to why that was. Was it the drugs? Was it a form of intimidation from Robbie? Was it that he just didn't have any more ideas? I think it's safe to say it was a combination of all three and more. It also seemed that Robbie was also running out of material himself. Having written a lot over the past three years, he had reached a limit like anybody would, and he was starting to find it harder and harder to find inspiration. Thus, the band did what they needed to do. They got back on the road, and they hoped that would make it better. And as we travel deeper into the 70s, a lot of things changed for the band. Their perception publicly, their critical acclaim, their personal lives, even their geography. This episode, we will take a dive into some of the craziest times in the group's history, and some of their darkest, and where they went after three years and three albums of hard work. The summer of 1970 isn't remembered as vividly as the summer of 1969, with the likes of Woodstock, but there was another important cultural marker in music, the Festival Express. Just like they were 
the brainchild of a young Canadian Ken Walker and his associates Thor Eaton and George Eaton, the three devised a tour that would put a series of shows across Canada and the bands on the bill would tour via a train. Originally, the festival was called the Transcontinental Pop Tour, but it was later dubbed the much better name Festival Express. The idea was a pop festival similar to the recent cultural phenomenon Woodstock, but it would take place in Canada and the artists would travel from venue to venue by train on a five-day ride from Toronto to Calgary. It ended up taking place in late June and early July of 1970, and the original plan was to have five festival stops, but Montreal refused to allow it on its scheduled date of June 24th as it conflicted with St. Jean-Baptiste Day, and the city was worried there would not be enough police to secure both events. And then in Vancouver on the west coast, the organizers hoped to use the PE venue, but they were laying artificial turf down, which they didn't want damaged and they could not find another suitable venue in Vancouver, so that show was cancelled. In the end, there were three mini-festivals in Toronto, Winnipeg, and Calgary. And at the time, Canadian musicians were very successful throughout the world, with The Van, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, The Guess Who, and others topping the charts, which was another reason to bring a big-name festival to Canada. The Toronto date took place on June 28th and 29th, 1970, and the turnout was around 37,000, but the organizers were expecting something a little bit bigger at 50,000. The first date was mared by protests by a group called May the Fourth Movement. They were named after the date of the Kent State shooting. They attempted to organize a boycott of the festival because they thought the music should be free and not for profit. The tickets were actually $10 for one day, $9 in advanced, or 16 for two days, $14 in advanced. So overall, you know, it was a pretty good deal considering all of the great talent on the bill. The attempted boycott led to a tense atmosphere where protesters clashed with mounted police and others. Eventually, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead announced a deal that had been struck with some of the performers. They would put on a free rehearsal concert across the road at Coronation Park in Toronto. And that free concert ran from 7.30 p.m. on the 28th until about 4 a.m. Many attendants slept on the park lawn and then paid to see the second day of the festival at the CNE. The actual festival's lineup included the Grateful Dead, Ian and Sylvia Tyson, James and the Good Brothers, New Riders of the Purple Sage, and a few local Canadian bands. Off to a relatively bumpy start, the tour hitched to Winnipeg which was only a few days later and had only 4,600 people turn out. Speculation was that the Toronto show's violence had made people uneasy and that the Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau was appearing elsewhere in Winnipeg that day. In Winnipeg, there was no violence or protests. However, beautiful weather with a great show for a few attendants. Calgary was the third and final stop. Again, the city was worried about protests and violence. The mayor of Calgary at the time, Rod Sykes, asked if the gates could be opened for free after the show had been put on for a while, but promoters refused, which caused a heated confrontation with the main promoter, Ken Walker, who claimed to have punched the mayor in the teeth, causing himself to scar. Turnout for Calgary was a little better at 20,000, but still below what the promoters had hoped for. In the end, the tour was a financial disaster. It had a budget of almost a million dollars, in which half of that went to the musicians. 
and after everything was totaled, they lost anywhere between $350,000 and $500,000. Performers, however, who had rode the train generally had a wonderful time. Though later, Robbie Robertson claimed that it was a nightmare of drinking and drugging, and it was a wonder that nobody died. What was interesting for the artists were that they were left to their own devices on these cars. There weren't any roadies, really, or bodyguards, and no fans on board. The musicians got to be really friendly and hang out and jam. The Festival Express had taken seats out of two cars of the train and made one a folk country car and another a blues rock car. And musicians would wander in and take part in whatever they found. There was excellent food laid out by a fully staffed train and lots of alcohol. We sailed over the Canadian prairie and got high with a truly heavenly band to entertain. Rick Danko and Janis Joplin were literally falling in love as they exchanged looks and sang together. But then again, everybody was in love that day said John Sheely, a music photographer who was on the train. The partying was so wild that they had to make two unexpected stops to restock the liquor. One of note was in Saskatoon when they went to the local liquor store to restock the train and sold it out. The performers all seemed to enjoy the five-day train party very much, and that much can be seen in the documentary where there's tons of jamming uh, between Danko and Janis Joplin and Bob Weir among many others. And some of the history of that can be seen on the band's box set anthology album, A Musical History, especially their performances of The Long Black Veil and Rocking Chair. And with the band done with the debauchery and fun of the Festival Express, it was time to get back to business. Recording. Bearsville Studio was opened in 1969 by Albert Grossman. According to Levon, at one point the idea was the studio would be a joint venture between Grossman and the band that never really came to fruition. Bearsville had practically been built by Grossman and the studio was just one part of his mighty empire. Grossman had bought an old building on the main road of Bearsville and turned it into an upscale French restaurant with an imported French chef to boot. Additionally, he owned a Chinese restaurant, a burger shack that served breakfast, among many other projects. But when that studio was ready for recording, the band was the first group to get in there and really break it in. There were still many issues from a technical standpoint, but the band had decided to spend the summer there working on Cahoots, which would become their fourth album. And Grossman hadn't just built the recording facilities, he had fitted it with a great team. He hired talented recording engineer Mark Harmon, to assist the artists and you know Harmon went on to have a successful career not only engineering for the band but also big artists like Seals and Croft, Neil Young, Poco and Isaac Hayes. Now it's interesting to remember that the band hadn't recorded in a traditional studio setup since music from Big Pink. There was a bit of rustiness when going in with a more traditional setup. Regardless they were locked in or at least as locked in as they could be and ready to track their fourth album. Kahoot starts with the tone-setting number, Life is a Carnival. A last grasp at unity is put forth on the album opener, written by Rick Danko, Levon Helm, and Robbie Robertson, with a horn arrangement by New Orleans musician Alan Toussaint. Anybody can. 
The catchy rhythm portion of the song was created by Levon and Rick, with lyrics being penned by Robbie. Though Helm noted in his book that Richard Manuel provided the line, two bits a shot. And more on the lyrics, we are treated to the carnival theme once again. It makes sense Robertson had worked for one in his youth. Life is a Carnival is basically this album's version of Walcott Medicine Show, dealing with the festivities of a live event. And paired with Levon's voice, it just fits so perfectly. It brings the song to life as he built some superb, rememberable lyrics. Listen here. In the third degree, trying to deal with people, people you can't see. Take away, take away, take away, take away. Now, this song would be nothing without Alan Toussaint. Toussaint was born in the late 1930s in New Orleans, and he was surrounded by musicians from an early age. His mom even took in a wide manner of local musicians, and his father was a real worker by day, but played trumpet by night. And in his teen years, he was an active musician working with various bands. He took his early influences from the syncopated second line piano style of famed Professor Longhair. And it didn't take long for Toussaint to make his ascent. He was 17 when he got his first major gig playing piano for the bluesman Earl King and sat in with Fats Domino when recording Domino's I Want You To Know. He also took a stab at producing with Lee Allen's Walking With Mr. Lee. In the 60s, he was signed with Instant Records as a producer and he wrote, produced, and arranged on a number of records from Lee Dorsey to Otis Redding. Parlaying that into the 70s, Toussaint began to develop a funkier style and worked with artists that we know like Dr. John and began to reach outside of New Orleans music scene and work with Solomon Burke, Robert Palmer, and the band. Now, Toussaint didn't know of the band when he was approached by them to arrange horns for Life is a Carnival. Here is what Robbie had to say on the band's love for Toussaint. Alan Toussaint is the truth of New Orleans music. It's rhythmic and it's funky. It's a language unto itself. And so connecting with Alan Toussaint just seemed a natural musical idea. And then for all of this to fit with what we were doing was um, an interesting process. And this collaboration was fruitful and led to many more interactions over the years. Toussaint's horn arrangement brings Carnival to another level. Let's take another listen. You know, Robbie later stated that the horns were recorded in a very specific way for this song as opposed to some of their other material. When other people wrote horns, everybody would come in and everybody would get out. With Alan's thing, everybody would play separately. It was kind of like a Dixieland approach. Additionally, Levon had this to say on crafting the song. 
It was one of those last real good band songs that came out of, of the workshop setting we liked. And you can definitely tell that the band were working as a unit, as this occupies a space above the rest of the tracks on this album. The band follows up Life is a Carnival with the newly minted Dylan tune, When I Paint My Masterpiece. From a tempo standpoint, we slow down with this new number that Dylan had just written and recorded in the studio with musician Leon Russell in March of 1971. Dylan had gone into Blue Rock Studio in New York City and had at his disposal great session players like Russell and Jesse Ed Davis, and they recorded two versions of the song, one with a band arrangement and one with altered lyrics that just had Dylan behind the piano. Now, many speculate that Dylan had written the song about lacking inspiration after the recording sessions of his latest album, New Morning. You know, it's quite blatant and not really hidden. Dylan is lyrically letting us in and letting the audience know through the lyrics that while, you know, he's written his fair share of masterpieces, he's waiting on more if there's anything left to give. Additionally, as we see with a lot of Dylan tunes, it's very flowery and poetic. The opening words on the streets of Rome let you in immediately into a world that isn't your own. And as American Songwriter points out, those five words transport Dylan fans into the world of coded imagery. We're all climbing down the Spanish stairs with them, hurrying back to our hotel rooms where we've got ourselves a date with a pretty little girl from Greece. Now, the band, or Robertson at least, had found themselves in the same predicament. Railing from three solid albums, the burnout was real. Where was the inspiration coming from anymore? So it made sense for the band to take a stab at this Dylan tune. Levon later backed this up by saying, We figured we couldn't go wrong having one of his songs on the record. The band had covered his songs to previous success, and why not take a stab at this? Outside of the lyrics, the music is also quite interesting. Dylan employs that great major to minor chord change in the bridge that is a pleasure to the ears. There's such a richness there, and the band really latched onto that and explored it even further. Levon Helm straddles the vocals to this song, which has become one of his staple works, highlighting his vocal prowess. The song has practically become synonymous with his voice, and it definitely heightens it. The other interesting point is the juxtaposition between his voice and the blend of the European flair with a rather country vocal. It's very interesting and different. Helm approaches the vocal with subtlety and restraint, definitely contrasted to his rockier outputs, especially on this album. Levon also employs his mandolin, which takes a leading role in place of the guitar and, and is guided with Garth Hudson, who also supplies a rather heavy dose of accordion to really layer on the Italian motif, which Levon later stated gave it that European touristic flavor. Additionally, an acoustic guitar is layered into the mix with sweeping broad strums, and Danko provides a melodic bass line to go along with Richard's behind-the-beat drumming. 
Now, the band ended up releasing When I Paint My Masterpiece on Cahoots earlier than Dylan had released the song himself, helping cement their version as the definitive. When critic Richard Williams heard the song in 1971, he wasn't a fan, and Dylan would definitely have done the song better, he said. But when Dylan's version was released later on Greatest Hits Volume 2, it wasn't leaps and bounds better, and essentially that argument was put to rest. Where things may have appeared to be going fairly well on Cahoots, the seams were about to show with the band's third number, Last of the Blacksmiths. As Peter Viney notes in his analysis of the song, this is where things all go wrong. There really is no better way to say it. The song is severely overwritten. The lyrics are heavy-handed to the point of parody, and the band had made its name on crafting songs about lost time and lost people, not with in-your-face lyricism, but rather their restraint in showing these themes. This isn't the case for blacksmiths, we are showing the tale of a craft in blacksmithing that is dying, and Robertson tries to let us into that world of decay of hands-on craftsmanship by somehow trying to relate it to extinction of a musician or an isolated artist, but the way that the lyrics are ham-fisted down the listeners' throats do really nothing to help sympathize. The lyrical content isn't the only problem with the song, musically it is also fragmented. There are several pieces that by themselves are excellent work, but together they just really don't come together. Let's take the piano for instance. It's great. It's a real lead on the track. And as Barney Hoskin notes, it's very bright and brittle. The piano is paired with Robertson's acoustic guitar, and you know, that works together. But then out of nowhere, we are introduced to a very loud and banshee-like soprano saxophone solo. Take a listen. great and highlights Garth Hudson's skill, but it doesn't fit. It kind of comes out of nowhere. And with all of these excellent individual pieces, how could you go so wrong? You know, Manuel tries to bring it back together with his vocal performance, and he provides that anger and that tinge of the character that is the blacksmith, that craft is dying. And that, you know, that does help push these hand-fisted lyrics through, but it just doesn't really do enough. And the problems that plague blacksmith continue into their next song, Where Do We Go From Here? Bernie Hoskins says that Where Do We Go From Here is easily the worst offender in the didactic stakes, a desperate forced eco-lament. And Robertson himself doesn't even try to put up a fight, saying years later, it's a shit-headed version. We got like hammer-headed. I don't know. I don't like what I did under those circumstances. There's a very moving thing in there wanting to come out, and it ain't in this version. Robertson pretty much hit the nail on the head, as painful as it was for him to say. The most moving piece of this song is the vocal performance, 
Rick Danko this time supplying the leads as he opens the song with force. Did you hear about the eagle of distinction? One that came on every Friday afternoon. And it seems that eagle has near flown into extinction. Descending to the sand, his biggest enemy being man. Have you ever seen the Denko is joined on the chorus with Levon and Richard, but the signature vocal blend of the previous band efforts don't really appear here. The magic that was vocal harmony just doesn't sit right. Yes, Manuel is excellent at reaching those crazy high notes and Levon can hold the bottom end, but it just isn't enough. Again, the lyrics just try too damn hard. We are introduced to the theme of the Great Plains, Interesting, full of rich history, a topic that makes sense within the mythos of the band. However, with the lyrical passage like, Have you heard about the buffalo on the plain, at how at one time they stampede a thousand strong? And now that buffalo's in the zoo, standing in the rain, just one more victim of fate, like the California state, sure do miss the silence when it's gone. It really doesn't match the lyrical style of the band. Also, it doesn't really make sense. What does the Great Plains and the Buffalo have to do with California? Nothing. It was really just a cute rhyme. And yes, you can't really talk about the song without discussing the title of the track. It's easily a cry for help. The band's struggles are on full display with the title of the song. And it's a valid question. Where do we go from here after a rather jettisoned start to your career? How do you continue to go up when it's far easier to sink? Musically, you know, this song is fairly standard. What really sticks out is the power of the bottom end with Garth's organ. It really powers you through, and that's paired very nicely with Rick Danko's bass guitar. The piano and guitar work doesn't really leave anything to be inspired over. However, when things look really bleak on this album, we are introduced to the next tune, which sparks a second wind. Now, there are two tales that have been told in which deal with the recordings of 4% pantomime. According to Robbie, one afternoon in his studio in Woodstock, Van Morrison stopped by for a visit. Robbie was working on a chord progression on the piano when Van had an idea for some lyrics. Robbie played as Van improvised about terrible managers and an agent that was tough with a road schedule and he sang it as if Richard was there and would understand his plight. Then Robbie came up with his own improvised lyrics referring to Van as the Belfast Cowboy. That informal jam session led to Van wanting to record the song with the band and collectively record it together that evening at Bearsville Studio. 
However, according to Levon, the creation of the song was quite different. Van came to Bearsville studio one evening. Richard and him began to discuss the merits of Scotch whiskey. Essentially, they talked about the 4% difference in alcohol content between Johnny Walker Black and Johnny Walker Red. This led to the two acting out the lyrics and creating the song. Van wrote the lines about music management and a rousing poker game, and Richard provided the iconic line, Oh, Belfast Cowboy, can you call a spade a spade? This led to a rather catchy tune featuring two of the best singers of all time, who also happened to be drunk. Interestingly, the lyrics of the song are very dissimilar to other band songs. Yes, there are themes of drunkenness and the musician's struggle, which are thematically highlighted elsewhere in the band's discography. But as Rolling Stone magazine pointed out in their 1991 review of the album, unlike Stage Fright, which analyzed the artist dilemma, 4% pantomime is simply about being a working artist. And many of the band's songs have been in the first person perspective, but none of them in the literal representations of themselves. This one even uses real names on the choruses as two old-fashioned juicers, Van Morrison and Richard Manuel, coax as much feeling as they can out of each other. This perceptive Rolling Stone article is correct, and it was a rather interesting observation about the lyrical content and what could come from writing something off of the floor. Regardless of who wrote the song or whose story is more accurate, the band and Morrison collected in that studio Van had that bottle of Johnny Walker Red, and Richard had his six-pack of beer, and by the time that they had refined the structure, taught the song to each other, it was late and they were drunk. They finally brought in Mark Harmon to record, and went through the song with Richard and Van swapping verses. Apparently, Van flailed around, spouting off lyrics to Richard as he aggressively pounded on his piano, echoing back before they made a decent cut of the song. And after all of the drunken shenanigans of the night, Richard offered to drive Van home. Van had moved into Richard's old home and basically felt as if it was his responsibility. It was quite obvious that Richard shouldn't have been driving, but he said he was fine. However, when pulling out that evening into the icy cold Woodstock winter, Richard nearly ran Van over when unknowingly to Richard, Van had slipped behind the car. Four and a half pantomime swings back and forth, much like the singers on the song. It comes in hot with a waning guitar lick from Robertson before introducing the rest of the group. Rick Danko provides a thumpy, groovy bass line. The organ work from Garth Hudson places it in contrast to the band's typical churchy vibe and gives us more of a carnival-like approach that we see throughout the album. Robertson later commented on the recording, it was almost like this movement thing was going on and the music was carrying itself. It was bizarre. It was wild. It was a lot of fun to do. It was an archive of the kind of thing we actually would put on a record. Their boozy exploits provided a wonderful dual performance from the two best singers of their generation. Richard Soares taking his range to another level and putting on full display his falsetto and his lower baritone paired with Morrison who has so much power and soul. That performance is something to revel in now and even then people were wide-eyed. Levon stated that it was an extremely liquid session and Van and Richard were into it. Ultimately, 4% Pantomime is an interesting addition into the band canon. It's a song about the working artists. It's hearkening back to the days of the Hawks, or any working up-and-coming struggling artist. It's also one of the rare collaborations with an outside artist, which can be treasured. 
in the band's discography. With Cahoots underway in a less concentrated fashion, the band broke up to go out on tour, with Europe being the destination in the spring of 71. Concerned on whether or not everybody was in shape to play, the band saw it as an opportunity to just escape and play their music. By this point, the band had spent quite a bit of time in Europe with Dylan on his world tour. The cities were older and more majestic, steeped in history and intrigue, and the crowds were also different. Robbie states in his memoirs, they were overwhelmingly enthusiastic. The tour started in Hamburg, Germany before heading to Munich and Frankfurt. The crowds just lapped up the Americana sound. They also made stops in Vienna and Paris, where Albert Grossman had joined them and stayed for much of the tour. For the first time in a while, he was active in their day-to-day -day operations. The band then headed to Copenhagen, Denmark. Their European concert promoter was based there and threw them a marvelous party with traditional Danish food, women, and a fine selection of his friends. Their promoter also asked them if they'd ever seen a show. Grossman and the band were confused. Did he mean a striptease? Apparently not. He was insisted that they go see after dinner. They all piled into a van and headed down to the city. They entered a dimly lit building and they were seated. What happened next is a little graphic for the podcast audience, but let's just say an assortment of men and women entertained the audience in full acts of sexual intercourse. Robertson later described the events as exhausting and intimidating, but not really sensual. It was like watching circus sex on a trapeze. Following their wild evening in Copenhagen, the band returned to London for two shows at the Royal Albert Hall on June 2nd and 3rd. The shows were important, as it was the same venue that hosted the most infamous Dylan Electric show of 1966. It couldn't have been any more different this time around. The audience was hungry as ever and soaking in the band with the same level of excitement as the other European shows. Promoting stage fright at the time, the band started the set with Time to Kill before moving through their 19 song set list with cuts from their first two albums and some covers. They ended the night with an encore of Rag Mama Rag and Slippin' and a Slidin'. With London a success this time around, the band headed for Holland for their two final shows. The show was really unique as the folks in Holland were very liberal about their marijuana use and the band played a very loose set, pulling out all stops for their final show, and ended the set with Loving You is Sweeter Than Ever. The band was feeling good after their short tour. Everybody was pulling their weight and performing well. The drugs and alcohol were still there, but they were being held back, especially not to affect their performances. Well, everyone but Richard. While Richard may have performed all right, he was out of control in his personal life. His drug use and drinking had affected his ability to write and contribute in the studio. The band tried various methods to get him straight. That way, hopefully, he could be more productive and also out of fear that their friend may kill himself. Their solution this time was essentially to have him babysat. Thus, Mason Hoffenberg enters the picture. Hoffenberg was born in the early 20s in New York City to an extremely wealthy Jewish family. His father was a self-made man. Mason had spent much of his early life in military college before dropping out and going to a private Christian liberal arts college in Michigan. But by 1944, with little to no prospects, 
Hoffenberg was drafted to the Air Force. He was originally stationed in England before moving to Belgium, France, and Germany as part of the post-war Allied Occupational Army. Post-war, he used his GI Bill to study at the New School, a private research academy in New York, as well as a few other schools, including the University of Paris. And when he was living in New York this time around, he lived in Greenwich Village, and his roommate was James Baldwin, who later became the noted novelist, playwright, and activist. Hoffenberg really integrated himself into the village literary scene in the 1950s and knew the likes of Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. With his time being divided with living in France, he had married and had two children, and he was working for the French press, the global news agency, when he met writer William S. Burroughs. By this time, he was supplementing his income with writing dirty books for Olympia Press, which led him to meet Terry Southern. The two ended up writing the novel Candy for money. Published at Olympia Press for the price tag of $500 flat, the pair wrote the book via letters as Hoffenberg was in France and Southern was in Switzerland. Candy became somewhat of a cult classic in the United States, and that surprised Hoffenberg. He was really entertained by the fact that the critics thought it was some well-made satire, even though it wasn't. While any normal person would follow that up after such a great success, Hoffenberg rather got addicted to heroin while he was living in Paris. Wanting to get out of the scene and try to get himself straight, he decided, you know what, let's go hang out with Bob Dylan in the UK and befriend people like Mariana Faithful, Mick Jagger, and Yoko Ono. After that didn't work, Hoffenberg finally moved back to the United States and lived in New York City where he met Libby Titus. The two lived together for a short time after her first divorce before Titus really met Levon Helm, and the rest is history. Hoffenberg then took up residency in Woodstock, New York and became integrated with the band somewhat. His money by this time had dried up from candy and instead he befriended the band and according to Hoffenberg lived like a king. Without anywhere to live and needing a babysitter for Richard Manuel, the pair became inseparable. Hoffenberg was tasked with helping Richard kick his heroin addiction, which was really ironic since Hoffenberg was on methadone and addicted trying to get off his own addiction. And in place he also became an alcoholic. And if things didn't get any worse, according to Hoffenberg, I was in better shape before I moved in with Manuel. And the idea was really, I was supposed to help him pull out of his things that he was in. And regardless of the bizarre, twisted, drug-fueled nights that the two had, Richard actually got off of heroin. But he replaced that with drinking even more. And according to Hoffenberg, Richard drank like no one had ever seen. What's really interesting from this time is Hoffenberg was quite an open book and he later stated, my job was to head off all of the juvenile dope dealers up here who hung out around rock stars. So I answered the phone and say Richard's not here, he's not allowed to answer the phone. I go around privately telling them to leave him alone because he's gonna kill himself. But if they actually come over to the house, he can't say no. He's a brilliant guy, that guy, an incredible composer. We just sit around watching the dating game, slurping down the juice, laughing our asses off. Then have some insomnia, wake up at dawn with every angry, weird terror and anxiety you can imagine. You know, the four other guys in the band are serious about working and he's really hanging them up. They can't get to work without him and there's no way to get him off his ass. He feels bad about it, but he's just strung out. You know, it's incredibly sad, regardless of whether or not Mason was right to watch Richard, there seemed to be no way to get Richard back at this point. Working on cahoots continued to be difficult for him and he had his issues with his writing but you really couldn't tell by the amazing vocal performances he gave. 
Back in the studio for Cahoots, the band was working on scrapping together enough songs to put out an album, which brings about a rather odd number in Shootout in Chinatown. For a group that retrospectively put out rather timeless music, Shootout in Chinatown could really tear down that argument. As Griel Marcus points out in his book Mystery Train, the utter pointlessness of Shootout in Chinatown came complete with Fu Manchu guitar, a touch so tasteless it verged on racism. I'd go one step further and label it full force racism. Now it's true that there's somewhat of a tourist theme throughout Cahoots, from Life is a Carnival to the River Hymn. But this perhaps is the most egregious case. Again, trying to grasp onto something thematically that would work with previous band outings, Robertson went this time with San Francisco's Chinatown for inspiration. Steeped in history, Chinatown, then and now, is a touristic trap full of parody. And Robertson had obviously read about the recent disbandment of the Chinatown police in San Francisco, something that was national news and covered in Time magazine. Thus, it fit thematically with the American history that was disappearing that we see throughout this album. Robertson dove full force into creating lyrics that are cheesy and corny, as the location is. Things like, Buddha has lost his smile, but swears that we will meet again in just a little while, are just so painfully bad. It's really missing any interesting tidbits, and it's a very questionable outing. Musically, there really isn't much to be said. It's rather standard outside the obnoxious guitar playing. The singing is Richard and Rick on the verses, and Levon joining in on the chorus. The handoff of the vocals is kind of fun, but not really anything new. It just really doesn't make sense, at least for the band. And following one of the band's worst outings in their discography is the perplexing song, The Moonstruck One. Very much in the style of early band material, such as In a Station and Sleeping, we are treated to a manual ballad. However, this time it is not written by Richard Manuel, but Robertson, doing his best to emulate his authorial lyrical style. Well, it doesn't really quite hit the mark like Manuel, but if Richard wasn't writing, it doesn't really leave a lot of room for Robertson to really work. We are treated to the story of little John Tyler and Julie and Manuel sings as the lead character who falls in love with Julie and counts John as his best friend. Together they are somewhat of a trio. However, throughout the song we learn that John is lost to a snake bite and he's died. And the song really doesn't get any happier. Julie and the main character try to leave the place after not being able to get over John's death just after their car breakdown and return home to their dismay. 
It's very bleak, and there are various parts of the lyrics that are quite interesting, but it gets wordy and a little distorted at times. Manuel again sings the hell out of it, you, and you believe his anguish when John Tyler dies. Robertson adds his subtle guitar licks, and Levon gives us a smooth backbeat, and Rick plays a rather simple rhythmic bass. The song is really elevated by Garth's lead, taking his beautiful organ work all over the arrangement. Something interesting to note is Moonstruck 1 was originally supposed to include arrangements done by Gil Evans. Evans was a well-regarded Canadian jazz pianist and arranger, and there is without a doubt signs of the jazzier number needing his additions to make it whole. Garth does his best to fill in the cracks, making the song perhaps one of the biggest what-ifs of the band's discography. Next is Thinking Out Loud, a song much like Stage Fright's Time to Kill in terms of a mid-tempo rocker. Musically, the arrangement is quite marvelous. As Rolling Stones magazine points out in 1971, the arrangement here works beautifully, beginning with an eerie sounding line being doubled by guitar and piano. Take a listen. Speaking of piano, you've got Garth Hudson behind the keys here. Rather than Manuel, who, who typically goes for a more rhythmic feel, Hudson is a technical maestro working numbers around the ivories, giving it another layer. Rick Danko employs his acoustic bass guitar and plays a quite busy riff, filling in and out the back end, and Richard occupies the drum set, giving us his standard fare. However, lyrically, it is yet again a mixed bag. As Barney Hoskin notes, Robertson's lyrics were typically littered with eccentrics and bizarre images, but as Hoskins suggests, it works sometimes, but there are really wonky passages here. Again, Robertson is interested in things that have gone and faded away, justifiably. Take for instance the rather interesting lyric, Transylvania train, circus never came, the heroes are all gone. This is the type of writing we are used to seeing and exploring similar themes. And while thinking out loud might not be the best display, compared to other numbers on this album, it gets the job done. And the last line of the song perhaps is one of the best sets of lyrics on the album. Take a listen. Next up is Smoke Signal, which is one of the only songs from the album that the band employed in their live set during their 1974 tour a few years after recording. Meant to occupy a similar space to Jemima Surrender in terms of a fairly raunchy rocker, musically the song has two strong points, number one being Garth Hudson's piano and number two being Robbie Roberts on solo. This also happens to be one of the band's most political songs to date. The band had hidden their political undertones in their earlier albums, but this is perhaps the most forward they had been. Take the example, you don't believe what you read in the papers, you don't believe the stranger at your door, you don't believe what you hear from your neighbor, your neighborhood ain't even there no more. America's disillusionment was at an all-time high, between America entering another decade with a seemingly pointless war with Vietnam, the economy was facing high inflation, there was high unemployment, 
and the controversial findings of the New York Times Pentagon Papers, amongst other things, really put people on a shorter rope. Could this be what Robbie was talking about in part? Possibly. Additionally, a nice little tidbit is we are introduced to the term video in the form of the lyric, you don't believe what they say on the radio, you don't believe what you see in the video. The word was first used in the 1930s, but wasn't really prevalent or used in many manners, which makes it extremely forward-thinking, at least in this lyric, something that isn't really characteristic of the band, as they tend to gear towards an older lyrical style. And lastly, we get this lyric in this song, Young brothers join in cahoots, in a reference potentially to the band, nonetheless a great line period. Musically, nothing really is reinventing the wheel here. You've got Richard behind the kit playing extremely loose. You've got Rick Dinko providing bass and backup vocals, Garth Hudson on piano, and Levon on lead vocal. One thing to point out is Robbie Robertson's excellent solo, however. Take a listen. It's so sharp and frantic and holds a lot of power. No wonder they added it to their live set for some time. Following, we have Volcano, which sits in a weird place on this album. It's a rocker and it's kind of good timey, which is a bit weird tonally considering the record is rather dark and deals with uncertainty. However, as John Landau states in his 1971 review, musically it's competent, but not much more. The intended excitement never really gets generated. Really, I look at this song as the ultimate experiment. See, Rick Danko had decided to learn more about production, recording, experimenting behind the board, and he told writer Stephen Davis, it was a time of experimenting for me, arranging, producing, and getting involved in that way. What you can really look at that is interesting here is the use of multi-tracking on Danko's vocals. Take a listen. Though the final product sounds rather distorted or low in quality, it's already kind of spotty at best at times and really doesn't do any favors here. More on the production side are the use of horns, tracked by what can be gathered as just Garth Hudson. Take a listen. For the horns, lyrically, the song doesn't really do anything with any deep insight. It follows a young man lusting after his lover. Elements of the song and kind of the thematic nature can be seen in earlier band tunes like Caledonia Mission, but this one is a little bit more direct and intent. Well, Volcano is an interesting experiment. That lies the problem. It's an experiment and probably shouldn't have made it onto the album, or at least in this iteration. And with Cahoots almost behind them, Closing out the album is none other than the river hymn. The ladies would put the baskets on the table, and the men would 
underneath a shady tree. The children had listened to a fable while something else came through to me. Much like I Shall Be Released on music from Big Pink, the last position on the album is filled with a similar track, with a very fine song in the River Hymn. The River Hymn is tucked away at the end of the album and really doesn't get enough praise. It is perhaps one of Levon's finest takes as a member of the band. Not to mention the female backing vocal, which was recorded by Levon's partner at the time, Lily Titus. The back to basics approach of the song is very similar from something that you would see off of music from Big Pink. The River Hymn comes off like an old southern gospel tune, very churchy, sing-along type vibes, and that's quite pointedly referenced in the lyrics. The lyrics are also interesting, but perhaps don't leave as much to be discovered as previous efforts. There is perhaps a slight notion that Robertson was running out of words and resorted to a trusty thesaurus to help him find those rhyming words. However, for its fault, it's still quite cinematic. As we know, Robertson was very into movies, much during this period. John Landau states in his review of the song, Everything described is not only easy to visualize, but it's in the listener's mind, inevitably visualized. Now, thematically, it brings the album to a close as well. It ties the themes of the album together. There are hints in the song about a performer with lyrics like, I'm so glad I brought along my mandolin. The lyric also concludes the greater themes of the dying tradition, but that his tradition of music will never really go unchanged. The song isn't perfect, and the album as a whole always doesn't fit together well, but overall Cahoots offers some interesting entries into the band's discography. While the band may have not been inspired by their recent work, the rest of the world was still enthralled. Back in New York, the band was staying at the Warwick Hotel. They had received a message from Elton John and his songwriting partner, Bernie Taupin. They were wanting to stop by for a visit. Elton John had just released two albums and was quickly rising as a star. When the pair arrived, Levon and Robbie greeted them and they hung out. Bernie had told Levon and Robbie that their new album that they were working on was really inspired by the band, and they wanted to give the band the first copy. Elton then told them that the album was going to be called Tumbleweed Connection. Now, Tumbleweed ended up being released at number two on the UK album charts and number five on the US Billboard charts, and featured a heavy country and western flair with a nice dose of roots rock. While Elton was garnering success with his album, the band was finishing up theirs. From a recording standpoint, the band had always released their albums with a mix with a heavy bottom end. However, Levon stated that they wanted to change their approach. The album was mixed by Dave Perlman, who had returned from stage fright and had worked with other artists including the Beach Boys and the Silos. And mastering was handled by Ron McMaster, who had worked with Ella Fitzgerald, Count Basie, Merle Travis, and Kenny Rogers. For the cover art this time, they employed Gilbert Stone, 
He was born in Brooklyn, New York in the 40s. He later attended the famous Parsons School of Design on scholarship, and he knew from an early age that he wanted to be an artist. In 1965, he won a very distinguished award and spent two years residency in Rome. After that residency, he returned to New York with his family and did work for Esquire, The London Times, Sports Illustrated, Playboy, National Geographic, and also started doing album covers. His work for Cahoots is quite interesting. It almost seems somewhat religious, the band standing gauntly in front of a table. The illustration is clearly based off of the photo from their second self-titled album, and this time around they're looking a little worse for wear, in a Last Supper type moment with a mausoleum in the background. On the back, the album featured a dramatic shot of the band by photographer Richard Avedon. Avedon, another New Yorker, attended DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx, where he co-edited the school's literary magazine, The Magpie, with James Baldwin. Avedon joined the armed forces in 1942 during World War II, serving as a photographer's mate second class in the U.S. Merchant Marine. And he later described it as, My job was to identify photographs. I must have taken pictures of 100,000 faces before it occurred to me that I may be becoming a photographer. After two years of service, he left the Merchant Marines to work as a professional photographer. And from the beginning of his career, Avedon made formal portraits for publications in Theatre Arts, Life, Look, Harper's Bazaar magazine, among many others. His amazing work led to photographing Dylan and the band, and that inner cover photo features an image of a group in portrait with their eyes closed. Cahoots was released on September 15, 1971, and ended up charting at number 21 in the United States and number 41 in the United Kingdom. From the moment it came out, and even today, Cahoots has been a mixed bag for fans and critics alike. Richard Williams, previewing the album for Melody Maker in 1971, said, It's very good, though not flawless. It suffers occasionally from the same faults which put stage fright just under the 100% mark. It's still better in every way than most bands will ever manage in a lifetime. And what's more, it's unique because it comes from one of the two or three bands of our time which have been truly original. And Peter Stone stated in his review, The album has a harder, colder sound than any others. And for the first time, Robertson seems to struggle lyrically. Some of the songs leave the listeners feeling like they know what he's trying to say, but not sure if he's really saying it. The Los Angeles Times review of the album had all you need to know in the headline. Cahoots, victim of expectancy gap. And Robert Hilburn said, Cahoots would be hailed as a splendid album, but the expectancy level will keep the enthusiasm level down. Hilburn is essentially saying that you make two albums that are amazing, the bar is really high, you really have to reach the top every time, or at least that is the expectation. And really to put a dagger in it all, Grail Marcus said that Cahoot sounded like Robbie Robertson had undergone a lobotomy, and Nick DiRizio makes the claim for Ultimate Classic Rock that this has always felt like a breakup album. Like with the critics, the band rather forget about their album after its release. Rick Danko later stated, we were outrageous in our behavior. It was really impossible to get people in one place at one time. And when we did, it was hard to work because when we looked at one another, we saw how wrecked we were. It was hard not to crack up. The band had finally become self-aware about their problems. They knew it was either time to take a break and sort everything out, or they'd break up, or something worse, maybe somebody might die. Some big decisions were coming down the pipeline, and the band needed to figure out what was next. But like their song suggested, where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. 
Thank you again for listening to The Band of History. This is our first episode of 2020, and we aren't slowing down. We've got some really great interviews and episodes in the pipeline, as well as some other cool projects. You know, where do I really begin with cahoots? Um, during this period, there was a lot of great stuff to write on. I included some of it here. A lot of what didn't make this episode is coming out in the next episode. But one of the hardest parts of making this show is trying to remain fairly even in analysis. Um, I try to not interject my opinion and rather kind of take a look through a historical lens at what different critics and writers said. Uh, you know, personally, Cahoots is an album that I've come to appreciate more over time, but I have to agree with critics in terms of some of the questionable songwriting and the production on the album as a whole. Uh, I definitely get that they were trying something different. It's just a lot different for the band. It's really hard for me to write negatively about a group that I love so much, but it was needed in assessing this period. And they aren't too precious about it either. There's tons of interviews out there uh, slamming anything really post their second album. On another note, the official trailer has premiered for Once Were Brothers uh, by director Daniel Rohr and produced by Martin Scorsese. Uh, and it's being distributed by Magnolia Pictures. It will be available on streaming platforms and in select theaters in February. FYI, the trailer is actually really good. And I just don't say that because I'm friends with Daniel. Um, it's a really good trailer. Also, if you haven't listened to that interview with Daniel Rohr, the director of Once Were Brothers, definitely go check my interview out I did with him. I think it turned out amazingly. Remember, you can rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It helps the podcast in more ways than one. Also, we have a curated playlist for our listeners of the show, and you can find that in the description of this episode and on Spotify. Always remember to check us out on social media. We put a lot of time into providing some great content there. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Band Podcast, and you can join the conversation about the podcast on our Facebook group. It's called The Band Podcast as well. Check it out. We've got a brand new way that you can help out the show. You can check us out on Patreon to donate. Find the link on our website at thebandpodcast.com. There's different tiers, and there's a lot of great stuff that you can get in on, like extra episodes, live shows, a bunch of other stuff. So definitely check that out. This podcast is part of Pantheon, home of various great music shows focusing on a number of topics, including somebody new to the network, Barney Hoskins, who's written a lot about the band, and I quote here a lot on the show. So check that out online and in the show notes below. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. Uh, it's going to be a great year for the band. It's going to be a great year for music and this show. Uh, enjoy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 